halachically than at least intellectually and emotionally, because we've all lost someone with the passing of Dr. Lamsatzal. But more than that, you know, most people who are, who are on the call or on this, this conference tonight didn't have the, 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 you know, didn't have the chance to know Dr. Lam just by way of, uh, of ages. And so we want this night to be an honor to Dr. Lam, but we also want it to be educational. We also want people to get a sense for his greatness, who he was and what we lost. And it's, a, you know, it's doubly special. To, I can't think of a better person to, to speak about Dr. Lam than, than Dr. Joel, President Emeritus of YU and Rabbi Lam's immediate successor. Um, President Joel has been a close friend of our yeshiva for a long time. You know, we have enormous respect for him individually and as an institution. I remember listening to Rav Lichtenstein introduce um, Dr. Joel years ago in yeshiva. And, you know, Rav Aaron was not a person who, who threw around compliments. He said something along the lines of uh, Professor Joel being a role model in how he acts for the values that we hold most dear. So it's a real tribute to have um, Professor, Dr. President Joel with us tonight uh, to speak first about uh, Rabbi Dr. Lamzatzal and then to have a conversation with Rabbi Tarragon. So the cover Godot. You're, you're muted. Uh, you're second. muted. Why is this not working? One second. Dr. Joel, can I ask can you, you to start? Now? You were muted, yeah. Please start again. Okay, okay fine. Um, thank you very much. It's, it's really always special to... Uh, can you hear me now? Okay, fine, fine. It's always special to, uh, to be with you, um, and I miss, uh, I miss being with you. Um, and I'd like to offer words of remembrance. Uh, there are many people who knew Dr. Lamb longer and better and more closely. Um, in a certain sense, uh, uh, reflective of Ellie's words, uh, there's a certain sense of avalus when, uh, when a person loses a parent, there are lots of feelings that one has, but one is that you're closing the doors on a generation. And first of all, you get closer to those doors, uh, but secondly, you mark what is such a part of your life, but that isn't anymore. Um, I was always able to think of the fact that I was the young president of Yeshiva University, and that as president emeritus, I was the junior president emeritus, and that gave me a lot of comfort. Uh, there's a certain level upon which I am bereft, um, uh, knowing that what, for my life and for people of my age, was a defining life force uh, now uh, is an Olam HaEmes. There are some passings that must be remembered, for what is remembered is never lost. Norman Lamb was a defining force in fashioning a Torah Judaism of depth, texture, and color. His brilliant presentations and his commanding presence, his provocative insights, his sparkling humor brought the light of Torah to the American and the world landscape. But I had the privilege of knowing him as my predecessor at Yeshiva University, and he gave me the precious gifts of trust and guidance and friendship. 
and I'd like to just illumine him a little bit of that for you, and then we can have conversation. I had known Dr. Lamb, as perhaps some of the elders among you had, from his time at Camp Marasha uh, as teacher, through his time teaching uh, at Yeshiva University's Torah Leadership Seminar programs, through my friendship with his children, who are my junior contemporaries, um, by being part of his administration at Cardozo Law School, and even as a guest speaker several times while I was running Hillel, and he invited me to speak at Yeshiva. But as his successor, he extended a hand of intimacy to me, something difficult for a man both private and proud. From the beginning, we would meet regularly, weekly or every other week. He told me he'd give me any advice that I asked him for on the condition that I would in no way feel bound to accept his advice. Our meetings were wonderful personal sessions where he shared his views on Torah, on Jewish issues, on his hopes and his fears, institutionally, communally, and personally. He was a man of deep core principle, of deep core principle. And I could tell him anything and trust him completely. After I uh, marked five years as president, he unsolicitedly wrote me a letter. Um, and I think in it, he revealed himself. Uh, quote, I am the only one who knows what you are going through in your quotidian activities. The aching feeling that you are not getting enough done. The worry that there is no time for all that has to get done. The specter of potential failure. And far more significant, the joy of achievement and pleasure you have as more and more students are exposed to the teachings of YU." Unquote. Um, and many of us in positions of uh, responsibility, uh, even to family, um, really resonate with those inner concerns and aspirations that define us. And we should remember that he was our fiercest fighter for teaching and defending a life of Torah Umada, an ascendant modern orthodoxy, for 50 or 60 years. He articulated the foundations of our community. He gave smicha to over a thousand rabbis. He uh, signed the diplomas of most of our uh, teachers in the United States and, some, and a good number in Israel and awarded degrees to, I believe, over 25,000 alumni. He knew to his core that quality Jewish education is essential. It's the sine qua non for our future. On his watch, he established and supported the Shana Ba'aretz program, which has, in partnership with Israel, changed our community. He stewarded YU for 27 years and invested his whole life in it. Dr. Lamb was a private public man. He craved the safety of home and family. He was first and foremost a husband and soulmate of his beloved wife, Mindy, who passed away in April. They were a wondrous couple, warm and regal at the same time. And they had four wonderful, proud, joyous children who gave them grandchildren and great-grandchildren. He was a teacher, rabbi, and scholar unmatched. But I think the most profound impact will have been made by Norman Lamb, the philosopher who wrote over 10 books, championed concepts of Torah Umada, the royal reach, wrote of faith and doubt. Online at, uh, uh, on the YU website at lambheritage.org, 
Over 800 of his sermons have been digitized with his typing and his hand, uh, handwritten corrections. Uh, and uh, that's, that's the lambheritage.org. Every Arab Shabbos, I, I read Parsha Sashavua with him. Um, and frankly, these drushes are, are, are an amazing insight into the life lessons that he wanted to share with us. He was motivated by a rare intelligence, a rare intelligence, a deep drive and an absolute faith in God and the Jewish people. Dr. Lamb posited a Jewishness that was complex, not simple, textured, not flat. He recognized that we live with real issues. He thought those challenges should be taken seriously and dealt with. In his book, Faith and Doubt, he charged us to be in conversation with the world. Quote, if we have nothing to say to the world, we must stop talking. If we have something important to say, even if we can only intuit it and are unsure about how to formulate it, we must keep trying. Then even if we do a great deal of stammering, we ultimately will articulate that which will again distinguish us as a light unto the nations. For we have a vital message for modern Jews and modern man, unquote. In a sense, we have all been his students, and Amir Tzashem will continue to be. May his memory be a blessing. Okay. Um, thank you. Thank you so much. Um, I just want to pursue your final comments about him speaking to the world at large. Which world do you think he saw himself as primarily speaking to? And was that different at different stages? This was a person who had so many different facets to his career. He's a pulpit rabbi. He's an author. He's director of a major institution which goes beyond just the classic religious scope or the classic religious arena. Who did he see himself speaking with? Was he articulating Judaism for the Jewish community? Was he defending orthodoxy to reform the conservative, as he called them, deviationists? Or was he presenting Judaism to the broader world? What was your feeling? I think there are many facets to who he was. Um, I think if you, if you study his, uh, his written works, I think he's, uh, he's teaching to us. He's speaking to the, to, the, to the informed Jewish people. I think it's hard to read uh, uh, Faith and Doubt um, without having a grounding. Um, I think uh, that was Lamb the philosopher trying to share and advance um, those visions. I think from his earliest days as a rabbi, he sought to make us more universalistic. I think uh, there was always interwoven into his sermons. He would, he would, um, he would warn of the problems of liberal Judaism. Um, he would talk about the encroachment of contemporary values. And if you look at his sermons from the 50s and the 60s, they're the same warnings about a society that is uh, too full of itself, that's too materialistic, that assimilates too much. Um, uh, but by the same token, I think what, what inspired him and what he inspired in Yeshiva University is that we weren't just a small circle here to take advantage of us, he he, uh, uh, to take advantage of each other. I think he really thought that what distinguished our worldview was the fact that how we live and how we act is supposed to be of influence to the rest of the world. I think he could articulate Torah Umada as he did because he didn't see it as Torah Umada Bidievet. He didn't think, well, we're here in America, we have to know some things so we can get by. He believed that God's wisdom 
existed in the world, in arts and science, in the, uh, in the transactions of life, and that number one, we had to know about them in order to have a full Torah life. But I think he also thought that we had to embrace them, be a part of them, and, uh, and live them. Uh, I think his presidency, uh, uh, I would tell you once he became president, he spent more time defending modern orthodoxy from the right and from the onslaughts of charges of illegitimacy um, than, than he was from the left. And I think it was very hard. I think he was not treated well by the right. And I think it was a different time, you know, the 70s even, were a time when the, the yeshivish world was more intent on, 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 on an anger. And he, and he reciprocated. Um, but I don't think it defined him. Uh, last thing I'll say is in my private conversations with him, um, which would never get out, there was such a deep compassion. There was such a sense of hopefulness that our students would matter in the world, um, that there are problems that won't be solved halachically, maybe for 50 years, but there've always been problems that won't be solved halachically for 50 years. And as he would say, there are some issues that are just what we stand for, and the world has to accept it, and if they're wise, appreciate it. When you think about someone that's so multifaceted, he's a, a philosopher, an intellectual, a rabbi, person of ideas. And then, all of a sudden, there's this abrupt shift, and he becomes a, a rector of a major institution, laden with financial challenges, which we're all aware of, and he spends his days not articulating ideas, formulating thoughts, or at least as much as he'd like to, did he ever express that challenge, that transition? I, I want to read something that he wrote 44 years ago in his sermon. He reflected, as he writes, on a man whose life incorporated the senses of Torah. It's a beautiful sermon about the weights, W-E-I-G-H-T, weights that fall upon man and that challenge his dreams. I refer to my late revered teacher, Dr. Samuel Belkin, of him, it was true that he was laden down with good deeds and suffering as with millstones. He had good deeds, but he had this, the weight on him. He bore an enormous burden of mitzvahs for the congregation of Israel. His responsibility for leading and building the greatest Torah institution in the world, as well as a major, in, you know, it sounds autobiographical, major in, university, in addition to much personal suffering, the mitzvahs themselves were millstones of suffering. He had to put up with opposition, which is harsh, cynical, and unjust. Endless worry about the survival of his beloved institution. Yeah. Did he express this to you? Rabbi Lamb would love to be in the base matters writing the next book or learning the next sugya, but he had to be at the meeting or at board meeting. Or... Well, I, look, I think he was always, it's, he's a very interesting man because he was always very much of the world, but always very, very much a private person. He was not a cheerleader. And every president, I think, of yeshiva has had a different kind of burden placed upon him. Uh, Dr. Belkin did almost no writing once he became uh, president of yeshiva. Dr. Lamb continued to write. Um, Dr. Lamb never sought to be the, the modern-day university president who had to be involved in everything. He thought he had to be the chairman of the board um, and, uh, and delegated to people around him responsibilities. But he, so he delegated the responsibility. You never saw him delegate the weight. In other words, he wasn't necessarily on top of every issue. But that meant that he didn't get a lot of the transactional pleasure. He got all of the transactional grief. He had to own whatever was done that he might or might not have known about. He really did spend his time, look, as he was president, 
he wasn't recy recycling old drushes. Every time he would get up to speak, he'd have little index cards filled with tiny little words. And, um, and I think he took very seriously his role as president to be the articulator. Whenever Norman Lamb would get up to speak, there'd be something to be heard. He would make major addresses. He wouldn't give major shiurim. He defined that that wasn't his role in that context. But he combined, look, frankly, before there was a Shlomo Riskin, and before there was a Jonathan Sachs, right, there was a Norman Lamb. And he almost introduced the world to the notion of incredibly articulate speaking with a fascinating kind of message of depth that gave you an appreciation, even if you didn't understand it, that there was a lot there. Um, and um, so, yes, he bore, he bore his burdens. 27 years is a long time. So you have to look at Norman Lamb in 76 and Norman Lamb in 96. You also have to look at that quarter century, which was tumultuous, because ours is very calm, of course, but, but was tumultuous. He walked in, was confronted with a financial issue that he didn't want to have to deal with, but he stayed the course. He was on the bridge. He was a captain on the bridge prepared to go down with his ship, but not wanting to let it. So yeah, I think he was burdened by it, but I would tell you that he spent a good part of his presidency, a lot of his presidency, meeting with people and asking for support um, and speaking and teaching. Um, he was not so transactionally involved and was not as personally um, uh, transactional with students and faculty as perhaps they would have liked. And I don't think he had the room. I don't think he had the room to do so because anybody who knew him would stay involved with him. When he was president, he was still rabbi emeritus of the Jewish center. His cup was incredibly full and he appreciated it and thought it was what he was supposed to do, not with any sense of, uh, of, of, of anger or bitterness. I might be talking too much, but I'm trying to give you a full picture. Exactly what we want. Don't give us a, a fuller picture. Um, I'm, I'm drawing from my own experience over the last couple of years, having tried to share with people who were of Lichtenstein as the Corona Lebracha was, yeah. obviously different people. And I find that one of the most valuable portraits I can provide is not the ideas, because that they can access through the books and the writings and not the not the leadership roles, because those are documented, but who the person was, what his traits were, what traits touched you to humanize and personalize, give that little window. So you sat with this person in ways that right. most of us didn't. Who was he? Not his thoughts, not his leadership, not his articulation. Yeah. Was he a sweet person? Was he a kid? Obviously, what, what traits, what are the three traits that really imprinted your life? Look, he, he was very private, and that's overall. He was protecting himself. I think he was a very caring person, but also controlled himself not to overreach, even though he had the royal reach, uh, not to overreach. He was... Can, I, can um, I ask you to be a little bit more specific? Like, what is that? He, he was very... How did he not reach? He didn't... He connect. wouldn't go... He, look, sometimes we act differently. He probably went to Gush, uh, philosophically, at least. Oh. Um, he, he, <laughs> wait, <laughs> he waited sometimes to be... To be asked to be engaged. He wasn't the one who would say, now tell me about you. Tell me what's going on. That wasn't Norman Lamb. And, and, and remember, he had his family to protect him from his earliest professional days. He was a communal rough, first in Springfield, Massachusetts, and was so well remembered. 
in the Jewish center. He was very well remembered. He wasn't a backslapper. He never was. He was a towering intellect, but more than that. So I'll give you, uh, first of all, in our private sessions, he would be wonderful. I mean, he'd always insist that he, this is a classic that's been told in different contexts. But when I became president, for first for five months, I was president-elect. So I would choose to be in New York three days a week. And, um, and he'd invite me to the cabinet meetings, and we'd have lunch once a week in his office. When I became president, um, I asked to continue those meetings. And he said, sure, he'll come over to my office. I said, absolutely not. I'm coming to you. Um, he would come to my office when there were cabinet meetings. But I insisted, not because he always served lunch, but I insisted to be with him. I also insisted, because it's who I am and what was absolutely demanded, that no one ever forgot that anything I was doing was built standing on his shoulders. And, I re and once you become president, you realize that. Look, you own the good and the bad, but with Norman Lamb, there was so much good, and it was all aspirational. Right? It was all aspirational. The one thing that he never thought he was fully... He once told me, you know the hardest thing, Richard? I said, what's that? He said, the hardest thing I've had, I had, was to get my arms around the entire university. And I never could. Right? So he wasn't the master administrator. And, um, but personally, we would talk about all kinds of things. He would talk about his views, which I won't share, about, uh, about sexual preferences, about women rabbis, about uh, where the community was going. Um, uh, he would always tell me why he had a particular Rav who he kind of put in Cherem. And I told him I kind of liked him. He said, well, you're supposed to take him out of Cherem. What I did was, in my situation, not in yours. There was a non he was very sharp, but he was not judgmental. In the beginning, he was surprised by my presidency. Um, I wasn't the picture of the candidate he was looking for. And he met me before I agreed to take the job. He wanted to talk to me and to get to know me a little bit. And he said, look, I have to be honest. You weren't, you were mentioned for a long time and I never thought you were the, I don't know you well enough, but I have to tell you that from the very beginning, my children told me that my successor should be Richard Joel. So he approached me with an openness, but a big question mark. Not a great Talmud Chacham, not a Rav, not a scholar. Um, and uh, for the first the six months, he was supportive, but a little distant. And then he met with me and told me that he's thanking God because I have the desires that he had, and he'll always be friendly. And you saw what he wrote in that, in that portion of the letter. Um, I made sure that no one would ever forget that Norman Lamb was a defining force in Torah Umada beyond Yeshiva University. We established the Lamb legacy. We established the Norman Lamb Prize, which we first gave to Rabbi Sachs, and then it's been an abeyance because of all kinds of, of unfortunate things that involved Dr. Lamb but didn't really. I think it should be brought back now. Uh, when we'd sit together, um, we would talk a lot about, he would reflect a lot about the pressures that had been on him and his hopes for a future. Um, and he hoped that he could remain vital. One of the great sadnesses was that didn't last uh, for a long time. Uh, I have two memories that are seared in my mind. One is when I was the uh, director of something called Yeshiva High School Seminar, which had hundreds of high school kids, and we would get the advisors who were uh, Yeshiva students or Smicha students, and he would come to, to visit. I think it was he was already president. And he came over to me when he came to visit, and he said, Richard, he says, 
my son Josh, I think, is teaching, is giving a class. I don't want him to know. Is there any way you can show me where he is so I can hear him without being seen? And I have in, in, this, in my mind this image of Norman Lamb sitting in a chair in a vestibule with the door open right outside a room where Josh was giving a session. And it was always very meaningful. About two and a half years ago, when he was already very frail and, and um, um, uncertain, he was confined to a wheelchair. He came to YU when his grandson Ari was giving a community class at Stern College. And he sat in the back and we were schmoozing a little bit. And the look I saw in his eyes was the same look I saw uh, when he was at Josh. Family was everything. If you saw him alone with Mindy, and Esther and I had the privilege of often, uh, not so much in the last few years, but often having dinner with them or they would come to our house whenever we'd have a, an event for a leadership or for the Rabbeim. Um, there was such a, um, an intimacy that, that only they shared, but they never excluded other people from it. So I, I, I don't want to pretend like he was uh, Bill Clinton. Uh, God forbid, not in bad ways. He was, he was, he was, he was, he had, he had a sense of his own stature. He would walk through the university, not running over to everybody and saying hello, but it would be the president. And he was mockpit on that. Um, and, and he was right to be, by the way. Uh, and he was very lonely. Look, he was never, uh, um, he wasn't hail fellow well met either with the faculty or with the Rashi Yeshiva or necessarily with the students, but he was clearly the president. And he took that oh so seriously. Thank you. Thank you. Let's see if we can go back a little bit before, before 2003, because a lot of your comments are 2003 and onward when you started mm -hmm. this relationship with him. Um, one of your crowning achievements of your career um, until this point, has been um, all of your work with Hillel and investing in Jewish students across at least the country. What did, what, how was your career in Hillel affected by Rabbi Lamb in his capacity at Yeshiva University, in his role in the Jewish community? Before, let's say you had never become the president of YU, how would Rabbi Lamb have helped you and changed the arc of your career? Well, I think, I, I think, in fact, as I said, uh, what, you're, what he'll be remembered for most is not being president. Uh, as, a, as a young child, um, I remember feeling a sense of majesty when at a few events he would speak. As a, as a teen and as a student and as a college student, um, I think the whole image, and it was more than image, the whole concept of the proud, unafraid, nuanced Torah Umada Jew. You know, you can't say any words right now. Uh, uh, Torah Umada, Torah Derech Eretz. But he spoke to Torah Umada L'Chatchila. Right? He didn't believe in, he believed in synthesis. That was his word. And he believed it very deeply. So for me, as I think around being the a member of a, of a prominent Orthodox congregation that I was, going to different Shabbatonim, um, reading different essays, not because I was a bookworm, he was one of those, and there weren't a lot. He was one of those defining features where you said, yeah, you can be from, and you can be a part of the world, and you can matter. 
I also think I learned from him and some others, my Rebbe Abe Stern, may he rest in peace, and others, that, that we're all created in the image of God, that we're all children of God, that, that, that every Jew, call Yisrael, that, 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 that God gets to judge and we don't get to judge. And for me, the opportunity to be at Hillel um, was an opportunity for me to put into being um, the kind of worldview that he wanted, always being a proud Orthodox Jew, which I was, uh, not being apologetic of who I was, um, asking questions when I needed to halachically about how to do what I could do, but thinking that my goal in life was not to make people from, but was on the one hand to make Jews know their story and own their story, and on the other hand, let the Jewish message of how we partner with God to, 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 to help fashion a world and to improve a world could move forward. Um, those few times I met with him, he was always very curious about what I was doing, was always supportive. Um, uh, the, the major Shaila I once asked was on an airplane, and it wasn't of uh, Dr. Lamb, it was Rav Lichtenstein, who was on, who was on the plane. And I was, uh, we were talking, and I was talking about how difficult it is uh, and I remember him saying, and I don't say it publicly because I don't want to be responsible for quoting. He said that don't be afraid to use a cooler that's available to you to be able to succeed in that in that work. Um, and um, and he told me how important it was, and that was important. I think I think the they're very different people, but I think where they stood in history and how they viewed the Jew and the world were not dissimilar. In Rabbi Lampman and Rev Lichtenstein, but I'm no expert on Rev Lichtenstein. I've read many of his works, but I'm no expert. Um, I think he defined um, mid 20th century um, modern orthodoxy uh, from a position of being someone who was serving a very modern orthodox uh, synagogue uh, and did it as a, a, a dugmaishit, as a personal role model, and as someone who was not afraid to speak boldly about what truths were. Many of us of our age would see Norman Lamb because, look, Norman Lamb is 25 years older than I am, 23 years older than I am. So he was always the adult and I was always the child. Um, but he was just one of those people. You know, when you, when you see a persona and they make you proud by their being, that's not enough, but it's a lot. Who was his Norman Lamb? He was your he was your role model, your inspiration. Who are who are the people that created this person? Well, you know, I, again, I was not that I was not that close to him. I do think that uh, that he would always speak about his uh, grandfather Rabbi Baumel. Um, he'd uh, often speak about uh, um, uh, Rabbi Joseph Lukstein, Sichrona Levracha, who he was a uh, an intern for, um, and of course the Rav. I mean, I think the Rav was very defining to him. But, but if you look at him and also his late brother, Maish, uh, they were both very committed, motivated, um, taking on knowledge and wanting to have an impact. I don't know to what degree that was because they grew up before there was even television, never mind uh, uh, what we're talking on. Uh, but there was just a depth to them both, but to him, certainly. And, um, but, but again, um, as, a, as a more of a, regal figure, and I'm using regal not as a negative, but as a positive. I don't know if I'm helping you or not. <laughs> yeah. 
I have a question, but you feel free to take a pass because I think when you deconstruct him, his philosophy, his sermons, his role in yeshiva, his spokes, being a spokesperson for Judaism, the pride, the unapologetic Jew, rebuffing some of the claims of the liberals. And then you hit this roadblock. There's one part of everyone's personality. Where did that come from? And how did it integrate with the rest? And here's someone that was a world expert in Hasidus and didn't just study it from the outside, but you read his sermons and they're laced with actual, so he's an insider. I mean, right. he practiced Hasidus. And of course, most people in the Zoom, I'm assuming including yourself, aren't practicing Hasidim. Did that ever, were ever able to get a sense of where that came, not where it came from, but how it, how it flavored who he was? How would he have been different if not for Hasidus? Oh, again, now I, I, I'm sure I'm out of my depth, but, I, but I'll, I'll take a, a little stab at it. Um, there was music in, 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 in Dr. Lamb's soul. I mean, it was, it was, not, it was talking about a text of Judaism, not, not a, a, a legal system. Uh, it was a legal system that was a symphony. I mean, the way he would embrace nuance. Uh, uh, he loved opera. Why you used to have a night at the opera? And Dr. Lamb said he always was very happy because Esther and I would be sitting with him and Mimi and he said, I'm Mindy, he said, here's a chance where you get to sleep together. Um, he, he had that sparkling humor. Um, but I think, I think, you know, and his table, by the way, I don't know that he was a singer, but the lamb table was always a table bursting in song. You look at his kids, and they were people filled with, with, with and I'm not just trying to say Hasidus is a song. He looked, he tried to pull texture out of ideas. And it wasn't just, he wasn't the, the, the heir of Soloveitchik. Uh, there was a, uh, there was a, a beauty um, uh, to it. There was a texture to it. There was, a, by the way, a certain forgiveness in it, although that didn't permeate to the, to the public. It's interesting, he wasn't a huge force on the broad American scene. He wasn't. Um, he was a defender. I mean, he, and, and you know, if you look at, at orthodoxy in the 50s and 60s, it wasn't the place to go. It was, you know, Look Magazine saying that we were all going to die. It was um, an ascendant liberal Judaism uh, that was seemingly making giant strides um, and that would seemingly be taking people away from the orthodox synagogues when everybody was not observant but affiliated orthodox. So a lot of what he was doing was strongly making the case for who we are, what we are, and what we have to be. And then this unfortunate situation where he had to be defending the legitimacy of our lifestyle against the right. Um, but I think he was a Hasidic soul. I really do. But he, wasn't a Rebbe, but he wasn't a Rebbe. He didn't, he didn't make Hasidim. And that was, that was the difference. I think I understand. There, there was a, almost a poetry or a lyric quality to this philosophy. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think he savored life. I mean, I celebrate his life. I, don't th I do think, you know, people always ask me that when I did what I did with my professional life, how do I deal with the fact that I made all these sacrifices? And I'd always answer as a lawyer, and I said, I didn't make sacrifices. I made investments. Um, I think that's how he really felt. I think he was brought low by a lot of it. It was on his mind. You know, you have some sense. It's always with you. It's just like an anvil. But it's, 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 the, it's the chain of office. 
and and he was always wearing that. But he, who he was and what he believed, always transcended that. Very often at at Hespedim, and this is a sort of a Hespid, the style of Hespid, and there have been some very famous and one could say even infamous Hespedim where there are comparisons. The person we're mm -hmm. talking about compared to this person that we're all. Yeah. Point of reference, that part, but he was different in this respect or that respect. You mentioned a name before. I'm just trying to make it more relevant for most of the younger people around who didn't live through the 50s and 60s and for whom a lot of the cultural remarks aren't as resonant because it's going back 40, 50 years. Right. So you mentioned Rabbi Sachs. Right. I can imagine that most people here have read Rabbi Sachs. I'd say most people here feel at some level or another engaged, um, endorsing many of the views that he. How are they different? What was not not professionally, not the roles they played, but if you just put their system of ideas side by side, what it, what was Rabbi Lamb's voice in relation to Rabbi Sachs's voice? Oh, I'm on very thin thin ground. I would tell you that that um, in many ways there were similarities. Rabbi Sachs is not a touchy feely guy. He's not a guy with Hasidim that way. Uh, Rabbi Sachs, uh, uh, when he speaks, when he gives a speech, every word is thought out. And sometimes when he speaks, you look at him and he doesn't make eye contact. Um, and um, I think Rabbi Sachs might be, might be a little more of the contemporary world in terms of, um, of, of the academy. I, I, not in terms of high, not in terms of high thought. Um, I think, I think Rabbi Lamb was, you could never listen to Rabbi Lamb and think that he wasn't speaking directly to an Orthodox audience. Um, with, with Rabbi Sachs, there was more, univer there is more universalism. Um, Rabbi Sachs is, um, uh, and maybe it's more because this is the time. You know, he's assuming our modern orthodoxy. He's not defending orthodoxy against the religious right, right? He's been, and he was a chief rabbi of the entire um, British community and was struggling always with, uh, with what that meant in terms of working with the liberal community and with the yeshivish community. It was a different, it was a different mix. Um, I see a lot of similarities in their hashkafas. I see um, uh, a lot of, I, I, I think... Um, I think I'd put Norman Lamb and, 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 and Sachs in a similar way. Sa Rabbi Sachs really has devoted himself to be a scholar teacher. Uh, he's, he's all about his books. He's all about, I mean, he, he is a, he's a shyer man than Norman Lamb is. He needs his privacy more. Um, he, uh, he spends, he puts a day aside to be in the library every week. Um, not learning, writing. I'm, I'm not saying he doesn't learn. But I'm saying his, his and, and he was a person of, he is a person um, of enormous, um, uh, I don't know if he has a photographic memory or an eidetic memory, but he remembers everything he reads. And, uh, and that comes out. So I think, I think, and I think his personality was more of a rock star, right? Rabbi Sachs would come and he'd embrace the media, right? He would embrace it. He would embrace being with contemporaries. He embraced being in the House of Lords. Right. Norman Lamb wasn't, wasn't that way. Norman, I, I think Norman Lamb was at least as prodigious a Talmud Chacham, maybe more. I think one of the prices that Dr. Lamb paid is that he is a great Talmud Chacham. And, and that, you know, never dominated. 
a great Talmud Chacham. I'm not disparaging Rabbi Sachs, but I'm saying that's who he is and that's who he came from. They came from very different places. But I would say that to the degree that, that the younger generation looks at, at Rabbi Sachs and says, he's speaking right into my soul. He's saying exactly as I feel. I think on a somewhat different level, that's exactly how I felt about Norman Lamb. Well, while you're making your comments, I think, I think you would agree with me that Rabbi Lamb's center of gravity was always the world of Chazal, the wellspring of Chazal. Their Absolutely. And, and, and Absolutely. In all fairness, in Rabbi Sachs's writings, it's just a very, very broad and diverse set of values with prioritization for Hazal, but you don't get the sense that there's that primary, almost exclusive anchoring. Rabbi Lamb was of the yeshiva. He was always of the yeshiva. Um, with your permission, Dr. Joel, I see that uh, I thought I said Rabbi Blau was with us. And uh, sure. Rabbi Blau, uh, can I ask you to uh, share some of your thoughts? We didn't plan on this because we didn't know you were joining, but we'd be very, very Thank honored you, Rabbi. to share. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I don't know how to unmute him. He can unmute himself, I think. One second. Rabbi Blau, we can't hear you. People have been trying to unmute Rabbi Blau for a long time. Can you hear me now? One second, please. For some reason, the unmute button is not working. Rabbi Blau, can you try unmuting yourself? Hey, I have to do, tell you what I'm supposed to touch. Okay, we can hear you now, Rabbi Blau. We can actually hear you. Okay. Okay. Um, obviously, I come from different experiences. Uh, I want to mention two things. Uh, one is a comment that I've already written in or communicated in a couple of places. Uh, one of Rabbi Lamb's major contributions as president of Yeshiva was he was critical from transferring the Yeshiva of the Rav, Rav David Lifshitz, of all the European Talmudim and therefore American students for a European yeshiva to an American yeshiva with American rebbeim, and he had to interact with people and do so. The rebbeim, by and large, were younger than he, and they didn't a hundred percent share everything in his world. But somehow he managed to find a way that to keep the yeshiva going, transform it, and move it to face the challenge of a whole new generation. And I don't think people give him credit for it because it was not his oratory that did it. It was somehow he found a way to allow it to happen, to shape it, and yet let it be on its own. Uh, that's one point. And the other, totally not for me, this morning, I woke up and uh, looked at the obituary section of the New York Times, not to the obituary of Rabbi Lamb that was written the other day, but two obits that were put in by people from Einstein. They were not Orthodox Jews, and the relationship between Einstein and Yeshiva has always been very complex from the beginning until what's going on now. And they saw him as a Torah Umada person 
who enabled Torah as they understood it, but enabled Einstein to function autonomously and yet still be within the world of yeshiva. And this was very different than working with Rashi Yeshiva. And as, uh, as, 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 uh, as Dr. Joel pointed out, he didn't, he didn't micromanage, right? But somehow he was there when necessary to keep very different worlds of YU together in a very complicated time. I, I, I wonder if uh, Dr. Joel would agree with what I what yeah, I, 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 I agree, and I'm grateful for you saying that. I mean, look, hopefully each president puts a face or lets a different aspect out. But that transformation, I mean, Yeshiva was bereft with the loss of the Rav, completely bereft. And, um, uh, and I, think, I think both things that Rabbi Blau said are, are exactly true. I think Einstein is a whole different place, but Einstein, as a strong and proud Orthodox community, the, the students of Einstein, the Torah that comes out of Einstein, uh, the, 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 the incredible kind of, um, of modern Orthodox rabbi that comes out was forged because of Dr. Lamb. It was all during his time, I believe. And I, I, on the other side, I also agree about how he filled up the yeshiva. He knew how to have partnerships. I mean, he, he, he worked with, uh, with Rabbi Chalap, Zalzayn Gesundten Stark, and Rabbi Chalap, in his own way, would have people who he tried to get in as uh, Russia Yeshiva. Uh, and uh, Dr. Lamb knew all. Um, I, I'll say one other thing. Uh, there's been a rap that is largely unfair on Yeshiva in the uh, 80s, 90s, and 2000s, that it moved to the right. Um, and I think largely unfair. I think our community has gotten more learned and more intense. But I think the hashkafa of it has stayed. Dr. Lamb deserves credit and I want to put this in a way that you won't misunderstand, for steering a derech hamamutza, for steering a mid-course. He didn't always have the support of the rabbeim in doing that. You know, he, was, he would always say, you know, if I wake up in the morning and I'm attacked from the right and I'm attacked from the left, I know I'm in the right place. Um, he knew that he had to be standing alone in some way. Uh, the rabbeim, as he would explain to me, are different. They're not, they are... They are Yomam Valaila committed to Harbatsa's Torah and to Limud Torah, and that's their perspective. And it's not for them to have other perspectives necessarily. He saw himself as a person who had to do that. And I can say, as his inheritor of the university, that he did steer it in that way, that the synthesis only got stronger. I was the beneficiary of what he had planted. I just want to add one other comment. Uh, Rabbi Lamb invented the term centrist orthodoxy, mm-hmm. and it didn't stick, honestly. No one calls uh, modern orthodoxy centrist orthodoxy, but it was him. He was centrist orthodoxy. That's right. That's right. He was not fully modern, and he was not fully tradition. He was a true moderate, but a moderate from a thoughtful perspective, not a compromising one. Exactly right. Okay, first of all, I just want to apologize. I didn't properly introduce Rabbi Blau. I'm, I'm sure you don't need an introduction, but for those who may not know, he's been the Mashkiach of Shim University uh, from before Rabbi Lamb's uh, administration, I believe. So, 
Rabbi Blau, thank you for those comments. Um, let's just this is also the only this is the only time in history that Rabbi Blau has been muted. Okay, I, I'd like to conclude, uh, Dr. Joel. I normally conclude with a lightning round, where I say ten words and I ask people for their immediate instinctive response and association. I'm, I'm going to veer away from that because uh, it, it's uh, this should be a, a conversation a little more gravitas. But I do like to use that round to, to just fill out the picture. So I'm going to ask you four questions and ask you just to, to, to give me your response, your immediate feedback, okay? The first question is, if I'm a 20-year-old Yeshivat Haaretzion student, what would you recommend I read first? Which sermon, which book, where would you steer me? I would strongly steer you first to go on the lambheritage.org and look at Parsha Tashavua. Just start doing that you will gain immensely from it. Um, uh, in terms of other readings, um, I very much, I'm that kind of person. I, I love faith and doubt. Um, and I think, I think that's a, a great book, but it's not easy. Um, I think uh, for the right constituency, A Hedge of Roses. Uh, I mean, think about the breadth of this man, right? So he wrote this great book on Taras HaMishpacha. Never, never, you know, promoted it, promoted it, but there it was. Um, and, um, uh, you know, I, 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 I clearly like the Royal Reach, um, but I, I don't want to sound silly. I would clearly look at the Lamb Heritage. I think that, 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 you know, Hafachbaba, Hafachbaba, Kulaba. Okay. Um, second question. I know it's a difficult question, but we always look to our leaders when we face crisis points. The Gemara talks about Rav and Talmidim realizing that Rav had passed away the second they hit their crisis, which was a question in Hilchus Brachos. I think it's fair to say that in 2020, we're facing a crisis that surpasses, not surpasses, because everything is of importance, but certainly contends with the question that Rav's Talmidim were facing about Hilchus Brachos. And we look to our leaders, and sometimes they're no longer here. What would Rabbi Lamb say if we asked him, we're struggling through this, a planetary crisis, which is taxing our faith. And is there any way that you can dig deep into what you associate with Rabbi Lamb, what you think, I know it's a, it's a hard question, but what, what would he say for us to help us? Someone that knew him so well. From my perspective, only my perspective, I haven't made myself a lamb expert. Uh, number one, I think he'd tell us not to retreat into our shell. I think he would tell us not to, not to stop engaging in the world. Number two, I would, tell you that he would say that you have to look very carefully at halacha and deal very carefully in halacha. Number three, I think he had very strong tendencies about speaking out for the rights of the, of the underprivileged. I think he was, he was very concerned about inequality in America. He was very concerned about the growing socioeconomic gap. And I think he felt it very strongly. Uh, every time I would have a demonstration to go to demonstrate on behalf of Rwanda, uh, he would be incredibly supportive, as I know Rev Lichtenstein was in his time and in his place. So I think he was that. He was not a he was not someone to jump on every demonstration. But I think for today, I think he would say, as he said in the quote that I gave, if you have nothing to say, don't say it. But if you have something to say, speak for advocacy. And um, as a community, I think he would clearly be in the camp of those. Rabbanim and community leaders who have said, listen to our health experts and, and, and don't think that the world is here for you to abuse to your purposes. Um, it was always very, very clear to me. 
uh, he would say, try to matter in the world and, um, and care for those who can't care for themselves or, sh or shouldn't have to. Thank you. Thank you for your opinion. I went, I, I went to him when we had the first of our challenges over, uh, over homosexuality. Uh, and uh, Rabbi, uh, uh, Rabbi Blau is uh, somewhat familiar with this. And I had to deal with some crisis situations, and I tried to do it to the best of my ability, not by stifling, but by understanding, but also drawing the line where Halacha drew the line. And unfortunately, when the big explosion of the panel came out, I was on a plane on my way to London, and I had Yona Reese uh, uh, as dean of, uh, of the yeshiva, and I remember being uh, in the bathroom in my hotel in London because it was the only place that I could get primitive cell service. And we were together deciding on what statement to make. And as soon as I came back, I met with Dr. Lamb. And I, he listened carefully. He asked some questions. He said, this is and will always be a very difficult issue you both legitimized the human beings and said they were entitled to dignity. And you also said what behavior is, uh, is just not permitted by Jewish law. And he quoted to me what he had said uh, uh, many times before, that in Judaism, we, we, we oppose the act and not the actor. Thank you. Thank you for spending your time and for giving us a, a more full portrait of who this man was, what values he stood for, the type of dedication he demonstrated throughout his career. I think we all need role models. And, um, Absolutely. And uh, hopefully there are some people out there, myself included, who will be more inspired and more rededicated to their, to their weights and to their missions. 100%. Final question. What is your first, deepest, fondest memory on a personal level? What's that one moment? This will be our final question. If you can... All the ideas, all the times you it's spent. It's funny. That as one you moment. ask it, as you ask it, it was on the grass of Camp Morasha, probably in 1976. I was 25 years old, right? And and Dr. Lamb was giving a session, and I remember sitting in the grass, listening to this man, looking at the splendor around me, right, of of of, of nature and of young camping, and he spoke to my heart not with emotion. He spoke to my heart and I had to walk away saying, this is right. Thank you. Let's conclude by wishing everyone in this group that one day they will be in a camp. <laughs> <laughs> and they will also have that type of epiphany and continue to learn from our great leaders. And uh, thank you so much. Thank you, Rabbi Blau. And thank you everyone for all of your time and Amir Tashem. Um, we should continue to learn from his example and study his Torah. And as Richard, uh, Dr. Joel said, to be proud in our Vodas Hashem and, uh, and to be proud in our nuanced, textured Vodas Hashem. So thank That's you correct. so much. Thank you. God bless.